Hi, I'm Michael Morris. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the Christian Fundamentals Discipleship course. Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every day. The Bible is brimming with life-giving truths and rich promises from God. It tells us what He is like and sheds light on His plans and purposes for our lives. The better we understand, embrace and apply these truths, the richer our personal relationship with Him will be. So I want to share something with you tonight that came out of my quiet time this morning. And uh, <clears throat> it kind of sets the right tone for what we're going to be talking, tonight, talking about tonight. So this is kind of not part of the official lesson. But it comes out of Psalm chapter 18. And it's David. And he's, he's talking to God who's delivered him from his end. Okay, that's a little too soft. Can you hear? Testing one, two, somewhere in the middle. Test, okay, there we go. Everyone's happy? Is it recording okay? You happy? And he's talking to God after God has delivered him from his enemies, okay? And he says, this is Psalm 18, verse, I'll read 16 through to 19. He said, He sent from above, and he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. In other words, his depth, his confusion, his trouble, his fear. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the days of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And this is just what got me. It says, He brought me out into a broad place. A broad place, what does that mean? Where there's freedom, where there's liberty, where there's room. And then it said this, He delivered me because He delighted in me. I don't know why this morning that just kind of hit me, but I was sitting in tears going, You delighted me. I'm special. Just that whole thing that God does what He does because of who He is, but God expresses who He is to us because of who we are. And God delights in His people. He takes delight in you. When He looks at you, you're not a burden to Him. And what on earth does that have to do with what we're going to talk about tonight? We're going to look at this, and we'll get to the same conclusion at the end, so I'm kind of bringing conclusion right up to the front in this one. When we look at old covenant thinking and old covenant ways of doing things, God's blessing, there's always been a material aspect to God's blessing, whether it's lands, whether it's goats, whether it's whatever it is. It doesn't, it's not limited to that, and that is not simply what His blessing means. We're going to look at all of that tonight. But there's a way in which God lavishes Himself on us and He gives us the desires of our heart, so to speak. And He blesses us with abundance because that's who He is. And He does it because He delights in us. And from that kind of starting point, I want us to set our course or our trajectory tonight as we, as we come to the lesson and we talk about things. So let's just open in prayer. And Father, we want to thank You that your presence is right here with us in this room tonight. Thank you for your omnipotence. Thank you that you are good and that you are love. And I want to thank you, Father, that as we, as we say this prayer and we join our hearts together, we know that we don't just mouth words off into the air, but we talk to the person who is our God. And we want to thank you, Lord God, today that you have brought us out to a, bare, uh, to a broad place because of your son, Jesus. And you have lifted us up and delivered us because you take delight in us. And because of that, Father, you draw us near to who you are. 
So, Lord, we want to thank you for that tonight. Thank you that even as we fellowship with your word tonight, that the things we learn will draw us deeper into your heart. Father, in the context of this course, we know that this is about how we orientate our lives to follow Jesus. It's about discipleship. And I pray that tonight, Lord God, as we go through the stuff, as, through the notes, as we go through the lesson, and as we converse and talk and ask questions and share hearts, Lord God, that you would draw us into a, a deeper understanding of who you are and create in us a greater hunger, Father God, to know you in a more intimate way and in a deeper way. And we pray that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we've discussed, we are talking tonight about money matters because, as I've said, money matters. Money is quite a big deal in the Bible. How's it common? You well. So let's just jump into the notes and then we'll start unpacking things a little bit later. First thing is that the purpose of this lesson is to learn biblical principles concerning financial stewardship, blessing, and prosperity. So we're coming into a couple of lessons. It's this lesson and it's the following lesson where we're going to discuss various things, blessing and prosperity that are not limited to money, but we're also going to talk about financial stewardship. Financial stewardship is a theme that, that goes on in the Bible, and we're going to look tonight just how, how much of that there is and why the Bible talks so much about it. A revelation of God's blessing empowers us to prosper in all spheres of life and helps us keep money in its rightful place, thus faithfully stewarding that which God has entrusted to us. So let's look at some interesting facts from the New Testament concerning money. The gospel contains more warnings against money and its misuse than any other subject. One in four verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with money. One in six verses in the whole New Testament deals with or makes reference to money in some way. Almost half of the parables, Jesus have, uh, the parables of Jesus have reference to money in one way or another, particularly warning against covetousness. The first apostle to fall was Judas... It was because of his love of money, he sold Christ for money that he never lived to spend. And the first sin in the early church also concerned the giving of money to the Lord. Very interesting, isn't it? I never really know. I thought it was a spiritual book. I thought the Bible had to do with matters of the heart and of spirituality and that sort of thing. But why does it speak so much about money? I've said there in point 2.2, given that so much is said about money, in the New Testament, it's clear that it is an important subject. As long as we live in this world, money influences and affects all of us on a daily basis. It's of vital importance, therefore, that we understand biblical principles relating to finances so that God's influence can touch every area of our lives. And what I want to endeavor to do tonight is not necessarily answer all your questions concerning money and the practicalities of money and what, you know, how should I budget and how should I spend and, and those kinds of things. But I want us to, to get an understanding of stewardship, an understanding of what prosperity is in terms of the when we look through the lens of the Bible, what is, how does God talk about prosperity as well as blessing? Because most of these things we attribute simply to financial things. And is that true? Yes, in part, but not limited to that. So, why is money so important to God? I think the primary reason is this. 
Money is so important to God because money is so important to us. <laughs> Does that make sense? Money is an exposer of the heart. Our money will always follow our desires and affections. How we manage and spend our money reveals a lot to us about where we place value in our lives. We spend, when you go to the shop and you buy something, that, that item has a price attached to it. That is its value, right? And you may value something enough to spend a lot of money on it. Some people value cars tremendously, and they spend a lot of money on cars. And they live in a tumble-down old house, but their car is immaculate. Why? Because that's where they place value. So it's interesting in Mark, 9, Mark 6, 19 to 21, it says, Don't store up treasures on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. It says, store your treasures in heaven. So it actually gives us, it points us in a direction as to where we should be focusing on investment. Does that make sense? Store your treasures in heaven where moths cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And then it has this, this very popular verse that says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. You know, 20 years ago, if you listened to a message by a, uh, a priest, a uh, minister on, on financial wellness, the, 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 they would coin the phrase that says, if you want me to tell you what, I'll show you, if you, if you want to know what you value, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you. In other words, where your money goes, that's where your heart goes. That's what you truly value. Simple changes in the way we think about what we truly value and how we manage our finances can give a significant impact or have a significant impact on our walk of faith and our journey of discipleship. Some are of the idea that God or the church are just after our money. I've met people like that. This is not true. God is after our hearts, but he knows that our hearts go where our money goes. Now, you may say, is that theologically right and and, 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 and does that mean that we can buy devotion and all those kinds of things? It really depends how you break that all up. All right, but so, so the point that I want to make here is that God is not after our money. God is not needy. He doesn't put principles in place because He needs our money. When we come and give our offerings to God on a Sunday, there's not this spiritual hand that reaches down into the basket and takes it and says, thank you very much. It's, it's not about the, the substance, but it's about that which the substance represents. Money is an expression of who we are. Would you, would, you, would you agree with me in that statement? In a sense. Not that, we de- not that we derive our identity from money, but that when we give of, of our, our substance, we are giving our blood and sweat and tears that went into acquiring that substance. We are giving of ourselves, and we're sowing. Our affection and faith towards God, therefore, follow our... Will, will therefore be reflected in our finances. So then there's the principle where he says there, you can only serve one master, and we'll get onto the verse in a minute. Money is such a vital part of life that it can quite easily, for, that it can be quite easy for us to put our trust in it. Would you agree with that? When our bank accounts are full and the bonus is on the way, we feel, we feel pretty secure about life. 
when the geezer is burst and the insurance claim has come through and you've just scratched the car and the dog has run through the back window of the door and suddenly expenses have mounted up and you haven't made provision for them, suddenly you feel very insecure. You feel very... Why is that? What does that reveal to us? It reveals to us that a lot of our security is found in our financial well-being. It's in the way we think. We feel secure when we have an abundance of money that we'll be com comfortably able to meet our needs by our own means. And the reality is that there comes times in our lives where we have to acknowledge that our means are not enough. But all of these things play with the affections and the security of our heart, and they reveal to us where our trust truly is. What do we do? Do we turn into a flat spin? Or are we able to direct that concern somewhere and, and, and express faith and trust in a different way? Like I said, people put our trust in it. And when this happens, it begins to take the place of God in our lives. This is reflected not only in how we spend our money, as I've just mentioned, but also on how we pursue it. What do we spend more conscious time and effort pursuing? Money or an intimate relationship with God? Poignant question, right? Now, what does that mean? Should we all go and live like monks and resign our jobs and trust that Jesus will miraculously provide? No, that's not the point that I'm making. But I'm talking about where we place our trust for our provision and our care. And our, Jesus said, pray this way. Father, give us today what we need for today, our daily bread. Meet our needs today. We put our trust and we orientate our expectation on you. And in so doing, I take the, 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 the trust that I put in my finances, that I put in my ability to manage them, or that I put into my ability to earn them, and I place that trust upon you. I will do my part, but my expectation is not that I am able to meet my own needs. I am fully dependent upon your, your help and intervention in this. Luke 16, 13 says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, to serve mammon, I've written a note here, but I, don't, I can't read my own note. Oh, there we go. It determines. Sorry. To serve mammon means that it determines how you live your life, and it becomes the decision maker on your life, both for how you get it and for how you give it. To serve mammon, it's a spirit. You'll see that the word mammon refers to money, wealth, and material possessions. So you can't serve those and God. You can serve one or the other, but you can't serve them both. Because the power of, of the one will contradict and, and, and undo the power of the other. The spirit of mammon is a deceitful spiritual influence causing people to worship the idol of materialism. Now, the idol of materialism is this world's definition of success. He's a successful man. Why? Well, have you seen the size of his house and how many cars he owns, etc., etc., etc.? He's made a name for himself. He's come to popularity, notoriety, and with fame comes endorsements, and with endorsements comes lots of money. Our, our definition of success in this world has been coined or, 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 or formed by materialism and the spirit of mammon. And it's the foundation of consumerism. If you, you need this.
to be somebody, and you need more, and you need more. And all of you have experienced at some time what it's like to get something that you've always wanted, and enjoy it for a little while, only to find out six months later there's a new phone, or there's a new car, or there's a new this. There's always something new. I remember the first time I drove, a Ferrari, drove in a Ferrari. Now, there's no, there's no debating here tonight. We're all believers. We know that Ferrari is the most amazing supercar man has ever managed to. It's, it's clearly divinely inspired. And I remember when I first drove in a Ferrari, hey, it was fun. But that's all it was. Now, I know to many people that would be blasphemy against the prancing horse. But I found myself enjoying an experience. And I enjoyed the experience, but found, you know, it didn't truly make me happy. I've shared this probably a number of times before, but there was a time I remember we were living in our little flat here in Pinelands. Helen and I hadn't been married long. And we'd had, we just had a fight. And she was in the bedroom. and I was in the lounge, and I was sitting there. And I was, during this moment trying to work things out in my heart and work things out in my mind. I don't know how I got onto the thought, but I started imagining the dream home and the dream life in terms of materialistic terms. Do you know the dream home I'm talking about? I'm talking the one that has the music room with the guitars hanging on the wall overlooking the sea, but the other side of the house overlooks the vineyards, and the other side overlooks the mountains. It's just the perfect house in the perfect place. And it's got you know the garage with the Ferrari and with the this and the that and the whatever else may be there. And, just dreaming of all these wonderful things. You know what I realized in that moment? That if I was sitting in my, in my absolute carnal dream and I was fighting with my wife, I would still be unhappy. That even if I had everything I possibly wanted, I would still be unhappy. Why? Because in that moment, I'd still be fighting with my wife. It made me get off my backside and go sort things out and, you know... And it was a wonderful revelation. Ever since that, it may seem like a very strange thing, but ever since that, the allure of all of that has kind of dissipated in the sunshine of the reality of what is true life and what is really important. David Guzik has a quote that I've, I've put in the books there. He says this, Many people would say they love God, but their service of money shows that in fact they do not. How can we tell who or what we serve? One way is by this principle. You will sacrifice for your God. If you will sacrifice for the sake of money, but will not sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, don't deceive yourself. Money is your God. Incredible, hey? So let me put this in, 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 in simple terms. How quick are we to withhold money from the kingdom when we find that we have a need? How quick are we to give an excuse for commitments that we've made for ministry or attendance somewhere because work has taken priority. How often do we excuse ourselves from work to take care of spiritual things? Now, what is this, Michael? Is this a guilt trip? No, it's an evaluation thing. And I'm not saying that there aren't conditions on both sides in which things are merited. But I'm saying in terms of the affections of our heart and where we orientate our lives, sometimes... The fruit undermines the intention. Does that make sense? In other words, we judge ourselves according to our intention. I intend to love God. I intend to be faithful. I intend to spend time with Him. I intend to, to give generously. I intend to be involved in the life of, 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 of my spiritual family. But the fruit or the reality of my life is 
I'm not meeting with God regularly. I'm not spending time in His presence because I'm overwhelmed with work and with family. And I'm not giving as I, as I intend to, and I'm not really a generous person because I'm still trying to pay off this debt or meet that obligation or make that need. Do you understand? So often the fruit and the reality of our lives is not, doesn't marry up to the intention. And so that's why the statement like, you want to see what your heart is full of, have a look at your checkbook, is so revealing. Because where your money's going, where your time is going, where your affection and your energy is going, reveals something about the reality and the true state of your heart. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, and then also 9 to 10 from the Amplified says this, But godliness actually is a source of great gain when accompanied by contentment. That contentment which comes from a sense of inner confidence based on the sufficiency of God. Now let's pause there for a moment. Basically, another version says, godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, it's great gain to you, to your spirit, to your man, to your relationship with God, to be in that place where our confidence is based not on our ability to earn or on our salary or our job or our paycheck or an inheritance or an offering or a gift, whatever it may be, but our confidence is based in the sufficiency of God. But those who are not financially ethical and crave to get rich with a compulsive, greedy longing for wealth fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. So that's very interesting. If that is what you're after, to make money, to be rich, hey, listen, how many people, is that the goal of their life? How many believers, is that the goal of life? It says these things, these desires, they're a trap, they're a temptation. They lead to many foolish and harmful desires. So in other words, that pursuit creates within you desires that are actually going to harm you. And they plunge people into ruin and destruction, leading to personal misery. What does that look like? They forfeit their lives, their health, their families, their peace to gain that which cannot truly satisfy Is this resonating with anyone? For the love of money, that is the greedy desire for it and the willingness to gain it unethically, is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I remember a conversation I had with God many, many years ago. I was, I was having coffee with before that I was having coffee with somebody and we were just talking about I was still a young man I wasn't married yet we were talking about roles and responsibilities and that sort of thing and he was explaining to me how in his mind and heart the primary responsibility for provision within a marriage fell on the man it was that was kind of his conviction on that whole thing and we were talking about how in this day and age you know it's so difficult for people to live off one salary uh, just given the financial climate we're in and how expensive life is to live off one salary, unless it's a very good salary, is very difficult these days. And so couples work, sometimes two, three jobs. And, you know, we were just talking about that role and responsibility. And I remember, I remember praying about that with the Lord, saying, Father, if my primary obligation in my marriage is to provide, I feel like I can do a far better job of providing generously in the marketplace than I can do working in full-time ministry. I wasn't in ministry yet. I think this must have been during about 2005, 2006, where I was considering it and that sort of thing. 
say, God, if, I, if, 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 I, if my role as, a, as the husband is to make the money, is to bring it home and, and provide for my family and to, to make sure that I'm a, a conduit for generosity within and without my home, I'm pretty confident I can do a better job in the working world, making money, than I could do in a church. And then God said to me, Michael, if you take care of me, I'll take care of you. In other words, if you take care of my kingdom and my flock and my people and what I've given you to do, I'll take care of you. I will carry that burden of providing for you if you take care of the burden that I'm going to lay on your heart. And it was in that moment that I, in the Spirit, lifted up my hand and shook. Shook on it with God. I made a deal with Him. I made a covenant with Him, so to speak. It was a covenant, His covenant from the beginning. It's all of your covenant, by the way. But it settled in my heart that day that from, there, from that moment forward, I wasn't going to be pursuing money, pursuing provision for my family. That my heart needed to be focused on the things and the calling that God had on my life in such a way that I had to trust Him for my provision to come through. And I want to say my testimony is that again and again and again and again, God has provided for me and for my family. And I've seen His goodness and I've tasted His faithfulness again and again and again. When I've been wise, I've seen His blessing. When I've been foolish, I have seen His faithfulness and His blessing. Because that's the covenant we made. Does that make sense? And so this is what they're talking about here, this, this pursuit of money. It's so easy to, to have it settle in our hearts and be engrossed by it. It is not money that is the root of all evil, if you read the Scripture. It says, but the love of it. Money is a neutral thing. It is the hearts of men that determine whether it is pursued and used for good or for evil. A nice way of thinking of this is, is, is money is a tool. Money is like a hammer. A hammer can be used to build and be constructive. A hammer can also be used to break down. It depends what your intention is when you hold it in your hand. While one can have both money and God, one cannot serve both money and God. And this has to do with our loyalties and the affections of our hearts. And when it comes to this sort of thing, that's where we enter into stewardship. Stewardship is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And Jesus really places a lot of emphasis on this thing called stewardship. So since we're talking about money matters, we're going to look at it primarily in that context. A good place for us to start looking at how we manage our finances as disciples of Christ is to realize that nothing we have is truly ours. Having devoted our lives to God means that everything we have also becomes devoted to Him. Our finances, therefore, do not belong to us. Rather, we see that all we have as belonging to Him. Does that make sense? So we say, Jesus, I now make you Lord of my life, but just not that part. You know, I still want control. I'll give you your 10%. I'll pay you your dues. And when I'm feeling generous, I'll give you a little, a little tip on the side, just a little bit extra because you did good service this month. But that's mine. The rest is mine. And I determine. To be a disciple, to be someone who, who, who says in their heart, God, I want you to lead me and I want you to manage my life. If we understand what we've been talking about thus far in terms of the power of money to hold sway and to reveal the affections of our hearts, 
the most, one, the, the, the most liberating thing we can do as a disciple and probably one of the most difficult things we can do is to say to God, Lord, you have free reign and I want you to have free reign. Lead me and guide me. In my experience, we're going to look next, next week at, at biblical giving and how some of the principles and the structures God has put in place in his word for, for managing our finances. But this is not just a willy-nilly thing. God is not a willy-nilly God. God has order and God works according to structure. And stewardship is very important in the mix of all of that. So I want to say, the moment you say, God, I want you to manage my finances, I think so often our fear is that God's going to say, right, I want you to sell your house, I want you to sell your assets and just give everything away to the poor and go and find a monastery somewhere and pray. You know, that's, that's kind of our fear. We hesitate to say that just in case God sends me to Sudan. You know, I don't believe God works that way. In certain cases, He does. But if God's going to send you to Sudan, I promise you the first thing He's going to do is give you a desire in your heart for the people of Sudan that you cannot explain, and a fire and a passion that will take you there and make you willing and happy to pay any price. Does that make sense to you? That's how God works. God works from the inside out. Now, when we start giving God free reign in our money, God begins to work from the inside out. That's the principles. That's how he does things. Let's get back to stewardship. Jesus understood the principle perfectly and devoted his life to serving his father's interests. John 17, 10, he says, All I have is yours. All you have is mine. He's talking here about the disciples first and foremost, all these people who followed him. These, 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 these are not mine, they're yours, God. But at the same time, everything you've given me is, 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 all I am and have is yours, and all you have and are is mine. There's this beautiful unity. And Jesus held nothing back from his Father, so God in turn held nothing back from him. And the same principle applies to us. Romans 8, 17 in the Amplified says, And if we are his children, are we God's children? Good. Then we are his heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, sharing his spiritual blessing and inheritance, if indeed we share in his suffering so we may also share in his glory. So it's this, it's this idea of, of, of all I am, God, I, I, I'm yours. I'm yours. And my delight is not to live in comfort, though I would love to have comfort, but my delight is to live for you and bring you glory. And if you lead me into comfort, I will use that comfort to glorify you and blessing to glorify you. And if you lead me into hard times, in the midst of those hard times, I want to live my life to glorify you because you are the desire of my heart. That's kind of what this verse is saying. But in the midst of whatever I find myself in, all that you are and all that you have as El Shaddai, as the omnipotent, omnipresent one, is mine. And you are with me in my opulence, and you are with me in my trials and my lack. And wherever I am, my trust remains fixed on you. Does that, do you understand the heart behind, behind that? It's an orientation that acknowledges that all of God belongs to all of me when all, that I, all, all of me belongs to Him. The principle is this. All that is Christ's is available to those who make all that they are available to Him. Amen? Faithfulness in stewarding money is an indicator of faithfulness in other areas of life. This is a very interesting portion of Scripture. Luke 16, verse 10 and 11. I'll read from the New Living Translation. It says, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large things. 
But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest in greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? Incredible. So first, the point there is that it's worth noting that Jesus considers money a little thing. It doesn't hold that much importance or significance, the actual money, in his estimation. But yet it's something that many spend much of their time and life striving for and worrying about. If we are unable to keep money in its rightful place in our hearts and manage it in a way that honors the hearts and principles of God, then we cannot be trusted with the true spiritual riches that God desires to give us. Now let me unpack that one for you a little bit. This is, this is basically the thrust of what Jesus is trying to communicate. If you cannot steward earthly possessions, who will give to you the revelation of the kingdom of God? If you cannot manage simple things like money, how can I entrust to you something of far greater value? I can't. So in essence, what the scripture is saying is that Jesus is watching and looking at how we steward our financial resources and the level of growth we have, spiritual, spiritual growth that we experience is in some way linked to that. Can we be trustworthy with the simple material things of this world? If we can be trustworthy with that, there's God is far more, to, more for us. And he can use that to, to grow us and to give us an understanding of things of the kingdom. But if we can't even manage little things like that, I can't trust you with more, God says. The key to growth and promotion in any sphere of life is faithfulness, because that's what God is looking for. Amen? Faithfulness. If you want to grow in your company and be promoted, you have to be faithful. Faithful to that company, faithful to your job, faithful to your responsibilities and obligations. The key to growth and promotion in any sphere of life is faithfulness with what you have been entrusted. Jesus' parable of the talents wonderfully articulates this principle. It's one of my favorite parables because there's so much to draw out of it. So let's just start reading it. We're going to read Matthew 25 from verse 14 through to verse 30. And it says that the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his servants and delivered his goods to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. So what I want to do, sorry, as we, as we, as we go through this, I'm going to comment on things, and much of it is going to be repeated in the notes afterwards, and we'll just sort of gloss over it then. But I like to go over it as we, as we kind of work our way through it. So he says he gave to one Five talents, to another two talents, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. So God, this master was not irresponsible in what he, he, he gave each individual. He gave to each one what he already knew that one could handle. He didn't give them more than they could handle. That would overwhelm them. And immediately he went on a journey. It's interesting, he didn't give them direct instructions. He just gave them the stuff, said steward this, and left. What does that tell us? That tells us that he was expecting and he was reliant on those servants using their initiative, their experience, their gifts to produce fruit. There's a clear expectation here that what he has committed to them and entrusted to them, he is expecting them to work with. Then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. 
And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. He had no understanding, clearly, of stewardship. He, 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 he understood what it meant to look after a possession, but he didn't understand stewardship. After a long time, I find that very interesting. It doesn't say after a short while. It says after a long time. Why? Because stewardship is measured by consistency over time. You may want to write that down. Stewardship is measured by consistency over time. It's not what you can do for a day or a week or a month. It's how do you consistently manage that which God gives you? How do you consistently steward that? You see, the, the, the point of stewardship also is this. I can manage that which is mine. I can also manage that which is somebody else's. But if I am to steward something, the word stewardship means I am managing something on behalf of another. Does that make sense? You are put as a steward over an estate, for example. It's not your estate and it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to somebody else, but you are given stewardship of it. So if we understand this principle of, Lord, all I am is yours and all you give me is yours for me to steward. You're entrusting it to me. You want me to work with it. Don't muzzle the ox while he treads out the grain. You want me to partake in it. But at the same time, you're looking at how I'm going to steward all of this because it belongs to you. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts. Now this is something we will all have to do. I forgot to write down who made this quote, but he said, Remember, my hearer, that in the day of judgment, thy account must be personal. God will not ask you what your church did or your organization did. He will ask you what you yourself did. So he's talking here about settling accounts. There comes a day of reckoning over much time when the master of that which has been entrusted to the, students or to the servants will say, come, let's settle accounts. What have you done with that which I have entrusted to you? So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. So he doesn't take the five talents for himself. It's not about commission. He is existing for his master's benefit. And he brings him a hundredfold return. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. What, is the, what happens? I will make you ruler over many things. Then he says, enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We're talking here about faithful stewardship in a natural kingdom that translates itself into influence and authority in a spiritual kingdom. Do you see the correlation here that God is talking about? Now, we are spiritual beings. We belong to a spiritual kingdom. God is wanting us to work out what, that which has been entrusted to us, His Spirit, His presence, the gifts that He's given us, and the resources that He's entrusted to us. And when we come to settle accounts one day on the new heaven and the new earth, books will be balanced. 
And it will determine not where we spend our eternity, but how we spend our eternity. Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Let me ask you a question. Did the other two know him to be a hard man? I don't know. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Maybe they did know him to be a hard man, but were loyal, loyal to him anyways. Maybe their perception of him was not that he was a hard man, that he was a fair man. But clearly this person's perception of him was as a hard, and let's put it another way, an unfair man, saying that you reap where you have not sown and you gather where you haven't scattered seed. So he's, he, he's using, he's excusing his lack of, of of action and, and his inability to have done anything by pointing out to some, by pointing and accusing somebody else. And he says, And I was afraid. And so I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money at least with the bankers, and at my coming I would receive my own back with interest. In other words, you should have at least done something. Something with what I gave you. It's interesting, both of the others, the one who had five brought back five, hundredfold return. The one who got two brought back two, hundredfold return. Third one brought back no return. So take the talent from him. Interesting this point. And give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has to him. Sorry, for everyone who has more will be given him. And he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. There are those, this is a quote by David Guzek. There are those who have things, like the servant with one talent, but hold them in such a way that it is as if they have nothing. These ones will find what they had taken away. So in other words, they, don't, they didn't esteem. You know, I, I, in the commentaries, one of the guys also said, you know, that, that servant who had one, considered that one talent that he had so insignificant in relation to everything else the master had, I mean, what significance would it be? I mean, if he earned interest on it, even if he doubled it, it would be absolutely insignificant in this grand scheme of things. Why even bother? Why even take the effort? There's no point in it. It's not going to make any difference. Let me ask you a question. How many people feel that's that way about themselves? Do you think the widow with two mites felt that way? Possibly. But she still gave her all. Do you think your small offering, maybe it's, that's all you got? Do you think it doesn't matter? It's insignificant. What is it? What is it? It's insignificant. What does God say about it? The way we esteem God and the way we esteem that which He has given us will determine how we steward it and how we behave and how we treat these things. And if we esteem things very casually as if they don't matter, we lose the blessing that is wrapped up in them. But if we steward everything that God has given us as though it does matter, 
You know, it amazes me that some people, <laughs> you know, are married into a Greek family. And if you, if you, how many of you have watched Everybody Loves Raymond? You know that old series? There's the old, I mean, the Italians and the Greeks are not too far removed geographically or culturally. And I love when you go to, in, in, in Everybody Loves Raymond, you go to the grandparents' house, the couch is covered in plastic. Because you protect it, you cover it, it's precious. You look after it, you do things. And it's quite funny, uh, you know, just, just coming, I see my, mom, my mother and father-in-law are the same. They, it, what you have, you look after it. And it amazes me, their stuff lasts forever. They're like the people of Israel, nothing rusts, nothing. Why? Because they look after it. You make sure you varnish your windows every, at, least, at least every second season, if not every season. You make sure that you look after your stuff and you take care of it. What is that? That's stewardship. Now, if you live your life that way, God will add to you. And that which you have will grow. But if you don't, even that which you have will be taken away. So we, have, we have this idea that God's going to take it away from us or the devil's going to come and steal it away from us. Listen, neglect takes away from itself. So let's look at some of the things I've written here. There's some noteworthy things that we've probably discussed all of them. The master gave to each one according to their ability. God will not set you up for failure, but desires to see you blessed. I want to go back to that. God delights in you. God is not going to set you up for failure. God wants to see you blessed. Why? Because he takes delight in you. And we're going to look at that a little bit later in our notes as well. Each one had to prove faithful with his master's possessions. In other words, they had to devote themselves to the interests of their master. That's very interesting. That obviously has ramifications for how we live our lives and steward that which God has given us. For his best interests, not just for ours. They, as they proved faithful with what was entrusted to them, they were given more. To those who had more was given. They were entrusted with abundance and entered into and shared in the joy of their Lord. So they had a share. It's interesting if you start thinking about this in kingdom terms. The master entrusts things to them. He rewards them and blesses them with more. And he says, enter into the joy of your Lord. In other words, the fullness of everything I have, come and enjoy with me. All I have is yours, all you have is mine. And you've been blessed, and I bless you with who I am, and you enter into my joy and into my fullness. It's beautiful. The unfaithful servant did not only lose what was given, but he was also called wicked, lazy, and unprofitable. Yeesh. The evidence of genuine Christianity and discipleship, folks, is fruitfulness. I think we discussed that under lesson number two when we just spoke about worship. You know, God's desire is for fruitfulness. For fruitfulness. And the evidence of our relationship with Jesus, the depth of that, will come out in the fruit. The reason the unfaithful servant failed was not because he was ignorant or unable to handle what was entrusted to him. God gave to him according to his measure but because of the way he viewed his master. The way we view God, either as a loving father or a hard taskmaster, will determine how we live our lives and steward that which he entrusts to us. This applies to money, this applies to gifts and revelation knowledge, to expertise, to time, to every area of our lives. The way we perceive God determines how we use that which he's entrusted to us. So that's, that's pretty super important. Now, before we jump into the next section, where we're going to talk about the blessing of God, we're going to understand biblical prosperity. 
All right. Let's jump into the blessing of God. Whee! <laughs> Sorry. We jumped into the blessing of God. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. <laughs> Did it take that long, Carmen? No, I was hoping at the way you laughed. All right. The blessing of God. Understanding God's blessing. Right. The word blessed means, so when the Bible says blessed, what does it mean? Uh, I think so often in our situation we have, you know, Christian cliches. How are you, brother? So blessed to be stressed. Yes. Blessed by the best. I don't even know what that means. It just makes me go, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> That's up to you. I did say it. So, <laughs> so our understanding of blessing is often very limited to financial things. So if you talk about, if, you, if I had to ask, just on a, on a, on a, on a gathering of, of believers, you know, does anybody have a testimony of how God's blessed them this week? What would your first thing your mind would go to? Some kind of material blessing or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Now, is that true? Yes. But it's not only that. And so we need to understand what blessing is. When God blessed in the beginning, what did he mean? So the word blessed means empowered to prosper. It includes both God's favor and his protection. God is, is present and at work in blessing. God, blessing is something that God does, and it's something where the life of God and the person of God is involved. Before God gave mankind anything to do, the first thing he did was bless them. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, etc., etc. Can I borrow a pen quickly, please? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. So God, before God expected any of mankind to do anything, He empowered him to, with the grace and the ability to do it. Isn't that incredible? That, that, that just shows you the nature of our God. He doesn't call us to do things and to attain some kind of level or to perform something without, being, without not only providing us with the ability to do so, but being intrinsically, personally involved in the process. The blessing or empowerment is inextricably linked to God's presence. Mankind was designed and created to function within the ambit of God's presence and God's blessing. It's as though there's an atmosphere that is conducive to us functioning at our peak ability and our performance. And outside of those conditions, we malfunction. Why is it the world is in such a mess? Because we've got a whole bunch of people malfunctioning, not doing what they were created to do. Why? Because they're not living within the ambit of God's presence, of His blessing, and of His empowerment. So, 
this kind of dawned on me many, many years ago, but just to think of, think of things like this, where God is, His blessing is, and His presence is, and His Holy Spirit is, they're all kind of connected and linked. And you cannot, you cannot, God cannot bless you outside of relationship with you. He cannot bless you outside of who He is. It's not like God's blessing is disconnected from who He is. Do you understand? So God's presence and His blessing, so we say, God, I want you to bless me. It has far bigger implications than just God do for me what I need or give me what I need. It's God, would you come into the situation and work in it the way you work in it and lead me in it the way you lead me in it? A curse, therefore, is simply the absence of God's presence, favor, empowering grace, and blessing. Outside of God's blessed presence, we are vulnerable and susceptible to deception and the attacks of the enemy. Under the curse, we can't accomplish what God requires us to do. It's as though everything around us that we depend on to succeed conspires to work against us instead of cooperating with us. So a really good example there again is the Garden of Eden. So God puts them outside the garden and says, outside of this presence and outside of what, what has now happened is, where I was empowering you to prosper... Now you have to till the earth and you have to work and you have to labor and you have to slave and that is what the curse is going to look like. And it's amazing when God makes covenant again with his people. If you look at Abraham, if you look at the nation of Israel, if you look at Jesus, the covenant that we become a part of, God, the whole purpose is that God wants to come back into the situation and be with his people and do for them and give them that ability that he intended to have and that, that cooperative work, the collaborative work that he intended in the very beginning and in the very first place. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and, that may, and have it in abundance to the full so that it overflows. That's God's heart for us. That we come into a relationship with him that life and blessing, no longer these things that... That, that we have to strive to earn, but they become a part of our lives so that whatever we do becomes an expression of that. We work out of the grace and the goodness and the blessing of God. In the Old Covenant, blessing and cursing, as I just mentioned, were associated with Israel's obedience to God. It's worth reading Deuteronomy 28, verse 2 to 14, to get a good understanding of what the blessing encompasses. You'll be blessed in the city, you'll be blessed in the field, you'll be above only and not beneath. I will bless your, 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 your kneading bowl and I will, your, your basket and your... You'll blessed going out, you'll be blessed coming in. You're just blessed. What is he saying there? What is he saying? Now, if we take that back to the analogy that I, that I gave earlier on, what he's saying there is, I am going to be with you and involved in everything you do if you will let me be your God. And your kneading bowl will prosper. And when you go out, you'll be blessed. And when you come in, my presence will be there and you'll have my peace and my protection and my grace and my divine ability working in you and with you. It's incredible that, that there's a verse of Scripture that says, and whatever you put your hand to shall prosper. Interesting to start thinking of these things, that all of that lies in relationship and fellowship with God. So if the people in the Old Covenant obeyed the law, they would experience the blessing of God. And if they disobeyed, they would experience the curse. In order to deal with the curse, God established a sacrificial style of worship in order to make atonement for sin and disobedience so that God's presence could dwell with them and His blessing rest upon them. As long as they remained loyal and obedient to God, Israel saw victory over their enemies and fruitfulness in their fields. Outside of that blessing, 
they experienced defeat, and they experienced lack. So you see the clear contrasts of when Israel obeyed God and they followed God. There was blessing, there was peace, there was victory. We see, I know I preached on this not too long ago, the culmination of this under the reign of Solomon, where David had brought peace on all sides. And under the reign of Solomon, there was such tremendous blessing that people traveled from all over just to see and to witness this blessing. And in that nation, every man had his own dwelling, his own fig tree, and his own vine. Everybody had their place. There was peace, blessing, and prosperity all around. And God was being honored, and he blessed and protected the nation. However, when Israel rebelled, what happened? Captivity, the destruction of Israel and the temple, Babylonian exile, all of these kinds of things, when the people's hearts turned away from God. That's Old Covenant. Where do you and I find ourselves today in this thing we call the New Covenant? In the New Covenant, the Bible says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We read it in Galatians 3, 13 to 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Now let's just tie these things together. The blessing of Abraham, what is that? Deuteronomy 28. Have a read of that. That's the blessing. Might come upon the Gentiles. So not even, not even the Israels, not even, we're not talking about the Jewish people here. The, you and me in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So we see here, even here, the, the curse is done away with that the blessing may come in the person of the Holy Spirit through faith. You see how it brings it all together and ties it all in together. That blessing of God is not some abstract thing that we, that we ask Him for and that in His benevolence He gives to us. The blessing of God is the Spirit of God, the presence of God, enabling, empowering, giving us the favor and working on our behalf. The very person of God. Isn't that incredible? What is the curse then? It's the absence of that. It's people who live without any hope. Without God working on their behalf. Not because he doesn't want to, but because they won't let him. Being free from the curse of the law means that we live our lives not from the perspective of trying to earn God's blessing, but from the perspective that God's presence and blessing are already with us and upon us. We can therefore depend wholeheartedly upon His blessing to work in our lives. That's huge. We can depend on His blessing. Why? Because we're depending on, a, on, a, on an infinite bank account? No, because we're depending on a person who is faithful and just always. I was sitting with somebody today, in fact, and just thinking about their journey. It was an elderly person. And I was recounting the journey of so many elderly people that I've, I've, I've seen over the years in this fellowship. And how God has, just thinking about their testimony and their story of God's faithfulness over years and years and years. And His provision and His goodness. And man, God is so good. You just look at it and you wonder and you go, you know, where I couldn't figure out where the answer was ever going to come from, God just steps in and boop, done in a moment. The Word declares that we are redeemed. This is Kenneth e. Hagen, he says, that we are redeemed from the curse of the law, from poverty, 
sickness and spiritual death. So if you, if you carry on reading through, Gen- uh, through Deuteronomy 28, verse 14 kind of is like where the blessing ends. So it says, if you obey me and serve me, this is the blessings that will come upon you. If you do not obey me, this is what the curse will look like. And tied up within the curse is poverty, sickness, and spiritual death. And you see it in the nation of Israel. These are a part of the curse. Are these not things that God has therefore delivered us from? The power of death, the power of poverty, and the power of sickness. Does that mean that everyone's now going to be wealthy? Is this a get-rich-quick scheme? Is this God's good luck club? No. But the power of those things no longer have any hold or sway over us, lest we give it to them. We're going to get into what that means a little bit in a moment. So if we understand that prosperity and blessing are found in the person of who God is, we understand that as new believers, therefore, prosperity and blessing are not things that come upon us from the outside, but that, that they are things that come through us or from us from within. Prosperity, therefore, is not so much about what I have, but about who I am and how that finds expression in my life, resulting in a change of my circumstances. Unlike the old covenant, where where the blessing of God was an external force that worked its way into the lives of the people, in the new covenant, the blessing of God resides within His people in the person of Jesus Christ. This means that everything we need to experience God's blessing in order that we may prosper in every area of our lives, has already been given to us. All we need to do is learn how to identify, receive, and cooperate with that blessing through faith. As we do, it will begin to manifest in whatever area of our lives we apply it, including our finances. So Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Who has blessed us. It's a past tense thing. It all is ours and it resides within us in that person of Jesus Christ. The key to receiving and walking in, the, in this blessing is the phrase, in Christ. So again, we cannot separate these things from, the personal, from a personal relationship. It's, it's all locked up in a person, in a personal thing. It's because Jesus is free from the curse that those who are in Him are free from the curse. Do you understand that statement? Because Jesus was cursed for us and rose again, having conquered death, hell, and the grave, and the curse, the blessing of Abraham may now come upon the people of God. So we are redeemed from the curse. Jesus is free from the curse, and therefore those who are in Him and identify with Him are also free from the curse. Likewise, it is because Jesus is blessed that those who identify with him are blessed. It's our inheritance. The more we get to know Jesus and become like him, the more these attributes will manifest themselves in our lives. This, speaks about spirit, this verse speaks about spiritual blessings, and it's important for us to understand that poverty is a condition of the heart that manifests itself outwardly. This, is part, this was part of the unfaithful servant's problem. He had a poverty mentality. So poverty is not just how much you have or how much you don't have. Poverty is a condition of the mind and a condition of the heart that manifests itself outwardly. And this can be in any area. It can be in finances. 
It can be in relationship. When people are poverty, have a, have a deficiency in their, in their spirit and in their soul in any way, it manifests itself in different ways. In our emotions through, and through patterns, etc. But likewise, the blessing and prosperity of God are conditions of the heart that manifest themselves accordingly. So if we, you know, if, if we look at social conditions and we look at the disparity and we look at poverty, is the disparity getting bigger or smaller? Is the disparity between the rich and poor getting bigger or smaller? It's getting bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger. It's interesting that to read in the Bible that, that it says, to him who has, more will be given. Is that a spiritual principle working itself out? So what needs to happen? Do, do we just need to give the poor the money? Well, we've got to help the poor. The Bible has a... The Bible, the way... The, 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 the financial system of the kingdom of God is, is in some ways capitalistic in the way it functions in terms of the, the principle I just gave you, that to he who has more will be given, uh, in that kind of sense. But it has a very, very, very strong moral compass to it that reaches out and says, take care of the poor, take care of the widow, and give to the, you know, help those up who are in need. But if you, if, let's say, for example, we had to just even it out and give, spread all the money that's in this world and give everybody the same amount of money. If mindsets and heart attitudes do not change, people will find themselves inevitably in the same situations they were before, often even worse. Why is it that, I don't have the percentages, but this is a true statistic, that about 6% of the world's population is Jew, and they own about 80% of the world's wealth. Now, those figures may be completely wrong, but it, the, the disparity is pretty huge, that the Jewish people still own tremendous portions of the world's wealth today, despite being a minority group. Why is that? It's the blessing principle and the blessing who's a person. So there's more to it. than there's not, I don't believe that there's a simple answer to that. I don't think it's just, oh, because God blesses them or because they're his chosen people. I think it's more than that. I think it's a mindset thing. I think it's an attitude thing. I think it's a heart thing. And the point that I want to say to you is this. As believers, you know, what do we do with those around us who, who, who are in poverty and, and don't know how to manage their, their thing? We help them up. We teach them the lessons we learn. Megan's walked with me for years. I had to teach her how to draw up a budget. Do you, know how I, do you know how I knew how to teach Megan to draw up a budget? Because somebody many, many years ago said, my boy, this is how you do it. And I've been working at that and making mistakes and going, do you understand what I'm saying here? There's, a, there's the financial management side, which has to do with knowledge, and there's the spiritual side, which has to do with blessing and, 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 and morality and and devotion of heart, and when those two marry in the right way, blessing and prosperity follow. So you can be a devout Christian and not understand how to manage finances and therefore end up being poor. Does that make sense? So this is the kind of point that I want to make tonight, is that prosperity is not, and, 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 and poverty are not just external forces. In many cases, you get born into them. I understand that. Often they are thrust upon you for various reasons. The spirit of poverty or the spirit of prosperity is something that lives within you and it's an attitude or a lens through which you perceive the world around you. 
6.1.3, the way we see ourselves in Christ is therefore very important. Do we see ourselves as blessed and prosperous? Or do we see ourselves as poor, needy, or even destitute? Third John chapter 2, third John verse 2, he says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Note this point. We prosper in proportion to the prosperity of our soul, our level of thinking and believing concerning the Word of God. So we're unpacking this thing called prosperity, and actually we haven't spoken very much about money at all yet, have we? So let's understand biblical prosperity. Biblical prosperity is not measured by the amount of worldly possessions one has. Rather, it is measured by one's position in Christ. This puts us in a position where we are able or empowered to do the will of God and succeed or prosper in attaining God-given goals. The world's idea of prosperity is to have an abundance of everything that we want when we want it. Wouldn't you agree? The yacht, the big home, the holiday home in Monaco, the this, the that, everything. Without any of the stress, of course. By contrast, biblical prosperity is the ability to meet any given need at any given time, both personally and in the lives of others, sometimes miraculously. Based on these definitions, Christ lived a prosperous life. He was able to meet any given need at any given time, often miraculously. Go and catch the fish. It'll have the coin in its mouth. Go pay your tax. We've got five loaves and two fish. Get the people to sit down. You come and done. Often Jesus met needs. Because, miraculous. Why? Because in his heart, lack was not really part of his vocabulary. He's, he's, he was so locked into the heart of the Father and understanding who God was and, and, and that which was with him and upon him and in him that when, when, when situations were presented to him, he wasn't moved by them. There was something else motivating him. And you can say the same sort of thing of when he was lying and, lying and sleeping in the bottom of the boat while, while the storm was raging. You can say the same thing of him when he was walking on water. I mean, that, that's, just, that's really just him making fun of us, quite frankly. Just walking on water. Why, Jesus? I just felt like it. I think sometimes, you know, if we approach, if we approach, if we approach the Word of God with a bitter sense of humor, I mean, I have to wonder what was going through Jesus' mind as he was... As he was as he, there were no footsteps, clearly. But I have to wonder what was going through Jesus' mind as he was walking out to the boat going, hey, guys, I'm going to flip. I can't wait to see what they're going to do. What is the point that I'm making here? Jesus was so aware of a supernatural reality within him to meet his given needs. Was Jesus poor? No. <laughs> Judah's quite emphatic on that one. There's so many things that, hmm? Was Jesus poor? Was he lacking? I mean, people use scriptures like, you know, the foxes have their holes and birds have their nests, but I, the Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he had no home of his own. And Jesus was poor and meek. But if I look at Jesus' life from the beginning, you know, God gives this child to Joseph and Mary, 
Who's going to provide for that kid? I love the story of the three wise men who come and they bring precious gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yeah. This is for his education. This is for that. You understand? So they, immediately they come and they bring gifts to the king. We see that Jesus, they cast lots for his robes when he died. Why? Because they were nice clothes. We see that he had a treasury. He had a treasure box. That, you know, his ministry had a treasury. Wherever he went, people were taking care of him. Was Jesus driving around in his Mercedes and flashing his wealth? And was, it, was he that? No, he wasn't that. I'm not, I'm not saying he was that. But Jesus didn't live a life of, of lack and, oh, where are we going to get our next meal from and poverty and worry. That wasn't the life of Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Jesus was prosperous. He achieved what he needed to achieve. He had the resources to do any, whatever needed to be done and where the financial resources did, weren't there, he had other resources to draw from. I'll never forget, I may have said this to you again, forgive me if I retell stories. Years ago, when Pastor Andreas was teaching me to draw up a budget, I gave him my list of, you know, your income and all my expenses, and then right at the bottom, he said, Michael, you've forgotten one category. I said, what's that? He said, it's the God factor. I said, what's that? He said, put it in your budget, you'll see. It's the God factor, how he comes in and does things for us and provides for us in ways that we can't always understand. The God factor is sometimes an expense where he says, Michael, I want you to sow a seed into that situation. Sometimes the God factor is a credit. It's quite cool when that happens, out of the blue. Some money comes in you weren't expecting. Sometimes that's seed, sometimes that's harvest. It just depends. But the point is, is he, 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 what he was trying to teach me through doing that is to allow God and to think in such a way that God is present and actively involved in my financial planning, in my budgeting, in how I manage the, the substance section of my life, if that makes sense. Do you understand? And I think that's where Jesus just had it so right. Jesus wasn't poor by anyone's standards. He was a man who lived and fulfilled the calling and the blessing of his life, and he was blessed in what he did. So let's look at the purpose of blessing and prosperity. We are blessed in order that we may be a witness and a blessing to the world. Some interesting scriptures here. Genesis 12, 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. There are so many ramifications in that statement that when God calls mankind and he, he wants to make relationship with mankind, if you, if you take it back to the God and he creates Adam and Eve and he says, go fill the world and take the, who you are and what I've put in you and subdue it and, make, and, and populate that throughout the world. In other words, bless it. Take that which is chaos and bring it into order and bring life. And then he makes covenant here with Abraham. And through you and through your seed, the whole world will be blessed because God's aim is still to bless the world through his people. Through the nation of Israel. It's not like God wants to bless the nation of Israel, his holy little huddle, and curse and kill everybody else. His plan is that through the nation of Israel, the message of his love will spread to the whole world. It's the same as today with you and I as believers. God's idea for you and I, the kingdom of God, is not about how we can dominate over the kingdoms of this world and, and subdue them by force. But that through that kingdom of God living in us, we can be a blessing and a light that shines in the world, that subdues it, not by force, but, but subversively almost from within. 
you are blessed to be a blessing spiritually, financially, relationally, gifts, talents, all of these kinds of things. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, And God is able to make all grace, what is grace? Grace is divine enablement, abound towards you, that you always, in having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. This is a picture of Jesus' life. That as he walked the earth, through him, always, wherever he went, he had everything he needed of all kinds of different things so that he could be a blessing and for every good work. He had an abundance. God's blessing is one of the ways that he confirms his everlasting covenant with us. Deuteronomy 8, 18. But you shall remember with profound respect the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. Why? So that you can be wealthy? so that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God's blessing is a constant reminder to us of who we love and serve and his glorious favor over our lives. His blessing is a picture that says, as I read here earlier on in, in, in Psalm eighteen nineteen, you brought me out to a broad place and he delivered me because he delighted in me. And so we have to understand that God's blessing is not simply a material thing, that it's His presence, it's His person, it's His involvement in everything that we do so that I can prosper financially, relationally, uh, occupationally, in every area that His life and presence can be worked out there. But it's also important to note that it is God who gives us the ability to what? Create wealth. It's not the devil who gives us the ability to create wealth. It's God. I want us to settle something in our hearts tonight because many are, are, they struggle with this fact. As much as it is true that the blessing of God has, is a spiritual thing and it has to do with His presence, one of, not the, but one of the manifestations of God's blessing is prosperity, financial prosperity. People have a problem with this these days. Do you believe in the prosperity gospel? Well, yes, I do believe in the prosperity gospel. Oh, that God used to be rich. and No, 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 that's not what I believe. I believe that God exists to, to make me rich and give me everything I want to. God is not my slave. He's not my servant. I am his son and I am his daughter. But as part of the covenant that I have with him, prosperity is included. Prosperity of soul, prosperity of heart, as well as the fact that he will provide me with everything I need for my life. He gives me the ability to get rich, to make wealth. As I steward faithfully what he gives me, more will be given. Proverbs 10, 22. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Do you want to tell me that he's just talking about spiritual wealth there? No. Philippians 4, 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory. One day I was praying about the Scripture and, and just meditating on it. And two things stood out to me, and I've written them down there. Number one, it says, that God doesn't say, I'm going to meet some of your needs, and the rest is up to you. It says, I'm going to meet all your needs. And the second thing He said was, God is, I'm not going to meet your need according to your need. 
My desire is to meet your need according to my riches in glory. Yo, that's huge. That's huge. One of the words that, when I understood this deeper, it really blessed my heart. One of the words that describe God, who he is, is the words El Shaddai. It's one of the names of God. And if you take that right the way back to its Hebrew meaning, it's, it speaks of the, the full-breasted one. It's the picture of a woman with a suckling infant who bre- whose breasts are full of milk, has more than enough. It's not the God of sufficiency. He's the God of all-sufficiency. He's the God of abundance. He's the God of not enough, but the God of more than enough. He is El Shaddai. If we don't see God that way, our, our expectation limits what He is able to do in our lives and wants to do through our lives. But if our estimation can lift to the level of who God is and the generosity of heart that God is, we are able to, by faith, begin to unlock far greater dimensions and receive far greater blessings that will not only make us more blessed and, 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 and our experience more blessed, but will make us conduits for His blessing into the world. How about this one? Psalm 35, 27. Let God be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. God delights in me. He, he wouldn't... If, I, if you delight in somebody, why would you withhold from them that which is in your means to give? And why would you take delight in their poverty? Does God take delight in our poverty? No. Does that mean we may not face poverty in life from time to time? No, it doesn't mean that either. But it's clear that God doesn't take... Some people think we can be... We're very pious in our, in our religiosity that the less we have, uh, the, the more pleased, the more spiritual we are and the more pleased God is with us. That's just not scriptural, folks. It's just not true. God has delight and He takes pleasure in the prosperity of His servants. So God does not take pleasure in the poverty of His people, but in their blessing and in their prosperity. And if so of the servants, how much more so of His sons and daughters who are co-heirs with Christ? Believers can roughly be divided into two groups. Those who live for the blessing of God and those who live from the blessing of God. As children of God and disciples of Jesus, it's vital that we see ourselves and our condition the way God sees us. Wherever the principles, attitudes, and behaviors of our Lord are replicated in our lives, His life and blessing flows. Remember, it starts with personal stuff, who He is, His ways, His thinking, His words, and as that takes root in our heart and begins to be expressed, the blessing that is contained in all of that and the power that is contained in all of that begins to work and flow. This principle is just as true in our finances as in every other area of our lives. A revelation of blessing manifests itself in gratitude and generosity. Would you agree with me in that? The foundation of spiritual... This, this is the foundation of scriptural financial management and will form the topic of our next lesson. Forgive me for the typo. So, folks, I hope that what I've, I've, I've managed to do with you tonight is just to, to hopefully just shift perhaps some mindsets that you may have had concerning blessing, concerning prosperity, concerning stewardship and financial management. 
that the way we see things, sometimes even within the church, is not necessarily what the Bible talks about in these things. I want to say this. Spirituality and following Jesus is not about financial gain. That's not what this is about. We're talking about discipleship here. But I cannot get around the fact that there's a lot of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that deals specifically with blessing and prosperity in terms of monetary things. The Bible has a lot to say about that. It's very, very clear to me by just reading Scripture that God intends for His people to be blessed, that it's part of His covenant with us, and it's a part of the manifestation of His goodness and who He is. I don't see how we can get around that. Many people struggle to get hold of that reality because it's just a spiritual thing, and I want to say to you, it's not. The beauty of our relationship with God, if we can, if we can kind of, we're happy to say that God is involved in my marriage with my wife, and He's working in her, and He's working in me, and He's working in us, and God is present there, and God is at work in my job. When it comes to my money, somehow that's, you know, I'm alone on that one. It's just not true. It's just not true. God is involved, desires to be involved, wants to be involved in every sphere of our life. His presence and His blessing to flow, that we can prosper in whatever it is that we do, that we can have prosperous marriages. What is something that prospers? That when I put something in, I get something out. That I invest in my marriage and I, my investment prospers. That I invest in my job and my investment prospers. It produces fruit. That I can invest resources financially and prosper and grow. Isn't that the essence of stewardship? So you see how these are all linked together. And my hope is that as you leave here tonight, that you, you see yourself not as this person striving and clamoring to somehow get hold of some divine wand of God that he will wave and suddenly all my needs will be met, all my debts will be canceled, I'll be, I'll be living in prosperity from here on out, you know, not having to work another day in my life. But rather understanding that prosperity, scriptural prosperity, is a collaborative effort as we work together with God following his design of financial management, which we're going to start talking about a little bit next week when we talk about the principle of biblical giving. And just to give you a prequel, you say, well, financial management is not just about giving. And you'll see, you'll see next week, I agree, it's not just about giving. But giving plays a, a fundamental part of it, putting money where it belongs, uh, honoring God and, and being generous, not just to him, but to others around us and to those who are less fortunate than us and modeling our lives according to a biblical pattern so that that presence, that person, that blessing, and that prosperity can flow in and through every avenue and facet of our lives. Amen? Any questions? Any comments? He's philanthropic so now. Much, yes, but he, he, they say the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But I mean, he is so wealthy that he's given so much away. You know, and people are scared. But the way he gives is he invests and he lifts people up, yes. and, the, and there's a return on that investment yes. again, yes. which enables him to keep doing it. He keeps getting richer. Yes, but he's got that whole thing too. Yeah, he does. See. He does. Many people don't. No. But. Um, how many of you have read the, read the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki? Very good. 
a very, very good book. And it's a, you're, you'll be amazed at how scriptural that book is without being, uh, even though it's just based on financial things, it's just the principles in it are incredible. For me, for me, the big shift, a big shift happened in my heart when I realized that Jesus wasn't poor. That was a huge brain shift for me, and it took me a long time to get my head around that. Jesus wasn't poor. Because so much of what we see is poor. Why was he born in, he was born in a manger because they had no money for, hogwash, they had money for the inn, there just wasn't any room. That's why he was born in a, in a humble manger. Why were they in Bethlehem, this poor little neck of the woods? Well, because they were there for a census. And so much circumstantial stuff has led us to believe that Jesus was poor, and it's just not the truth. It's just not the truth. Jesus had a, think about it, he had a treasurer. When, when, when Judas, so we, the Bible tells us two things about that, the three things about it. First of all, that Judas, Judas was the treasurer. It tells us that Judas, Judas had his hands in the treasury. So he was taking, he was on the take, and Jesus knew about it, and really didn't really do anything about it. So he clearly wasn't too concerned about the lack. Third of all, it tells us that as the, at the Last Supper, Jesus says to Judas, go and do that which is in your heart to do, meaning, go and betray me now. All the other disciples thought, what was he going to go do? Go and give money to the poor. We have this idea that Jesus and his crew were poor. They were a ministry team. They were well-resourced. Oh, but they had to go out and they couldn't take their, 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 their clothing and they couldn't take their wallets and that stuff with them. Jesus said to them, yes, because on that particular ministry journey, he sent them with a mission and he wanted to show them something interesting. The fact that they had wallets to leave behind tells you something as well. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.